Welcome to the Yams and Yuka podcast, where we explore the fabric of Black identities through culture, food, art, life experiences, and more, sharing the stories of international creatives. I'm Kamara. Hi, everyone. I'm Heather, and we are your co-hosts. Thank you to everyone who is joining us for the first time today. And for those of you who are returning to be with us at the table, we thank you as well. We have an exciting show planned for you today, and we're going to do something a little bit different. We're skipping over the appetizer and we're going straight to the main course because we have a special guest. So before she comes to the table, I'm just going to share a little bit about her. Charmaine Wilkerson is a Caribbean American writer who has lived in Jamaica and New York and currently lives in Rome. She knows firsthand about shifting concepts of home and family. A graduate of Barnard College and Stanford University, she is a former journalist whose award-winning short fiction has appeared in magazines and anthologies. Charmaine grew up on her late mother's legendary Caribbean rum cake, and she left the handwritten recipe to Charmaine before she died. Black Cake was inspired by a text that Charmaine received from her American nephew, who was getting married and wanted his grandmother's black cake recipe for his wedding. She began to write about the diaspora of food, which led her to this story about a woman for whom a recipe appeared to be of a great cultural importance. Let's welcome Charmaine to the table. Welcome, Charmaine. Hello, it's great to be here. I love the idea of your podcast and it's really an honor to join you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, it's an honor to have you here. And as you know, the podcast, we do like to speak to people who from the diaspora and who have lived an international life, such as yourself. So first of all, I would love to know where you consider home. You know, you mentioned that I live in Italy, but I consider myself to be a New Yorker. Mm. And the answer is never simple. I know both of you have lived in different places and, uh, you know, I spent part of my childhood in Jamaica. I did move there as a little girl. I've lived on both coasts of the United States and gone to universities on both coasts. And now I'm in Italy. And, you know, people talk about this idea of world citizen. I don't know about you, but I don't really feel like a world citizen so much as a person who has an affinity for more than one place, mm-hmm. feels at home in more than one place, feels nostalgia for more than one place. Mm. I can just speak for myself, but I definitely identify with that. I don't know about you, Heather, but yeah, definitely feel nostalgia for a few different places. So now that you are in Rome and you've lived in Jamaica and East Coast and West Coast of America, how would you say living in all of those places has shaped your identity? Well, without a doubt, you know, and I hinted at that, I have a sense of belonging to more than one place. Mm-hmm. And I think that it is difficult for any of us, even in a fictional world, to imagine what we would be like, you know, after another kind of upbringing. I only know how to be myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but where my imagination takes me is thinking about, as you know, you mentioned, sort of shifting concepts of home, family and identity. And there is no doubt that the idea of how identity is formed and how it might shift informs the novel Black Cake. Black Cake is a fictional work. It is not autobiographical. And yet there is no doubt that my fascination for the power of stories which are handed down from one generation to another feeds into 
again into black cake because stories are handed down in different ways. So stories are often handed down through food mm-hmm. or in the kitchen setting or at the dining table. Mm. And I am fascinated not only by the stories that are shared and how they shape our identities as individuals, as families, as entire cultures, but also the stories that are not shared. You know, what are you not told? What do you learn later? How does that affect how you see yourself and others? And I think a lot of that, the moving around and coming from a multicultural family where no two people have had quite the same upbringing also feeds into the idea of, well, what if you think you're one person and you find out you're another? Mm -hmm. And that definitely comes through in the book, Black Cake as well, you know, things that are said that shape you and things that are not said that shape you. Yeah. And, and talking about those stories that are not shared and those that are, what inspired you to become a journalist or a writer to create your own stories and, and put those out there in the world? Well, you know, I was one of those little girls who was always reading and loved stories. And I would swipe books from my parents' bookshelf, probably books that were a bit too advanced for me when I was a little girl. And I always thought I wanted to write stories. But like a lot of people, you know, when you look at your life and what seems to make sense in terms of being practical, in terms of generating an income, in terms of where you live, I looked at journalism because I love the writing. And I found that journalism was a wonderful way to live in one's community. You know, you'd get to meet people, you'd discover things. You certainly had to break down some of your own assumptions. And I found that really gratifying in many ways, but I've always had this pull towards the fictional story, which is completely different. Because when you look at journalism, Or when you look at communication for other people like clients or colleagues, which I've also done, you always start with, okay, what is this about? You know, maybe you learn new things. Maybe it's not quite what you think, but you start by saying, what is this about? So going back to the idea of writing stories, you know, I always felt myself being pulled towards what I call the logic of the imagination, which in my case is not as organized as journalism or other kinds of communication. (laughs) You know, I sit down to write and something triggers an idea. It's always a trigger. It might just be something I've seen or heard or read or thought about, but it's never a conscious idea of today I'm going to write about Heather and Kamara going down to the beach where they see this thing happen. It's nothing like that. I just start writing. So in the case of Black Cake, for example, I was writing this scene about these two teenage girls swimming out in the sea. And it began simply with this feeling of strength and determination, which is just pull, 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 swim. And I started writing about these young people who had an obsession with the sea, who were extremely strong physically. And that began to grow into a story of two girls who didn't quite fit the expectations of their times, the 1960s in the Caribbean, and who, because of this strong connection with nature, would find their lives changed. In other words, this obsession would actually change their lives. They'd take two different paths, but their lives would be determined 
by this physical connection with nature and this obsession with the sea. So I was writing that. And then I had a couple of other things that I'd written that I thought were stories and they sort of came together. So again, going back to your whole question of journalism and writing, you know, the journalism was one thing, the writing was always there. And what I found was that over time, I had to make a conscious choice to take a different path. Because for me, fiction writing required time, but it was also a different way of expressing observations, you know, about the world around me. It's not the same thing. Yeah. And I could definitely feel that in your, in your style of writing in Black Cake, where it's not really a stream of consciousness, but it's almost like it's definitely not as organized as journalism would be. It's like you're living the experience of a person rather just the structure like this is the story and they did this, you know, you're really feeling those emotions and that movement as you described it, literally of the, that pulling in the scene, you can feel the environment around them as you're reading it. So I, I, we can definitely sense that in the book and it's, it's, it's brilliant. Thank you. So what was your catalyst? I mean, you talked about feeling the need to make that conscious choice. What was it? Was there something specific that made you decide, okay, we're moving from short fiction to writing your debut novel. How did you make even that transition for yourself? Well, that really happened all together. I was, you know, it seemed that I was spending so much time doing work for other people and that's mm -hmm. fine. But because the other work that I did, you know, let's call it day jobbing or my previous careers, because that kind of work involved constant computer time, reading, writing, the same abilities I needed to use in fiction writing, I made a conscious decision to sort of reduce the amount of time I was spending doing the other work once I felt I could afford to do it. And so it's only been uh, several years that I've been trying to make a conscious effort to write fiction regularly because it is a different mental process. And maybe other people can do it all, you know, raise three kids, be at the computer all day and still write a story. Toni Morrison did it. But, you know, I, I needed to sort of back off from the other stuff. So the catalyst in terms of short fiction to novel writing it really all sort of came together. Earlier, I was telling you about how I wrote a scene and that sort of grew and then mm. connected to other scenes and ended up in Black Cake when I actually had written another novel because it was a story that came to me. Never saw the light of day. Don't <laughs> ask about it. But the, <laughs> but the point is I was writing. And uh, while I was doing that, I was also writing short stories. And I discovered this wonderful community online of other writers who write very short stories. We're talking about a page, two pages, a paragraph. And many people use the term flash fiction and also microfiction. And these stories are short stories, but because they're very short, they have very intense gaze. And I was fascinated by that because when I was writing that first story, I was sort of writing it in that way. And as I moved on to Black Cake, the story still came to me in that way. And I think you may recognize that in some of the chapters. It doesn't mean I don't see a larger story. It's just that often I focus on one image, one feeling, one idea. And I don't always like to explain everything around a story. So the transition really was that I found I had this story growing 
in my imagination and started to work on it. Because what happens is you get to a certain point where you think, ah, I have this story. Now let me do a little bit of research. Let me take a look at where I'm going. Let me examine you know, whether this is making sense. I have these three characters over here and another two. And maybe I'm telling you two a bit too much about the writing process, but that's how it works for me. I'm always writing what I call scenes. And those scenes may be short stories or they may end up being something longer. And I'm also working on something else that's longer. And that's how it was born too. I just write stuff down and I allow myself to think about where I'm going. So I'm very much a write first, ask questions later person. <laughs> Your question was the transition and I wouldn't say there was a transition. I would say that I had this project and it started taking up more of my time. Nice, lovely. No, we love hearing about the process. That's what we would like to share and kind of give that insight to on Yems and Yuka so people who want to be writers can kind of see what, what is it like? What could I be doing? What practices could I try out? So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, and it also helps us to really understand how you came to put the book together. And now it makes more sense when you mention the combination of the short short writing format but creating it into a longer project because when you do read the book that does come across and and it makes it it brings across the ideas in a really succinct way especially with the shorter chapters presenting an idea presenting a whole story of a person in a shorter time and then you mentioned you know some things that other writers have to deal with at, at the same time whilst they're writing so it would be really interesting to know what challenges you faced in the industry especially as a black writer well when you say the industry i i gather you're speaking about the publishing industry in terms of book writing mm -hmm. as opposed to journalism or other kinds of writing mm -hmm. i'm very new at this you know this is my first novel as I mentioned, I had another novel, which I showed to a few people, but then I was writing other fiction. I was able to publish short fiction by entering competitions, which I do suggest to new writers because it's a wonderful way to sort of get your foot in the door without knowing anyone. And I do think that it's, I don't know if democratic is the right word, but it's sort of a more open process. But going back to my own experience, I think I'm too new in the industry and I've been too fortunate. You know, I wrote the story, I showed it to a few people, I had good feedback, and then I found an agent and a publisher. I've come too recently to the industry and have been too fortunate to really talk about the challenges. I can tell you what I thought what the challenges were, what I thought the challenges were. I wrote this story, you know, from the heart, from the mind. And as I looked at it, I thought, hmm, most of the people in this novel are people of color. Some identify as Black, some not. I wonder if people like this story, people meaning people in the publishing industry, would they be less likely to invest in it because there are more people of color and because these characters are not quite fitting with prevailing stereotypes of what people of color do in stories because you have a number of different characters in two different timelines, roughly the 1960s and the present day, the recent uh, past. And they have all sorts of issues. Some are related to race, colorism, 
Others are related to relationships, aspiration, communication with parents, their love lives. So what I felt, it was more of a, of a trepidation and a worry and concern that maybe no one would ever publish anything I write if I people it with people of color. And this is not a lack of trust in readers because you know what? Look at me while well, I love Jane Austen and I love Shakespeare and I read William Faulkner and you know, we all read stories with people who don't look like us. And often we say we want to see more people in literature who reflect some of the realities that we may be living. But we also love stories about other people, don't we? So I believe that readers love a good story and they will embrace stories that have people who are different and people who feel they don't see enough faces out there or characters out there who reflect their lives will embrace stories like that too. But I, I did wonder, I, I really had no idea until about a year and a half ago that anyone would publish a novel I'd written. It's really positive to hear that the process has been fairly straightforward for you and that your characters and your concerns were, you know, somewhat unfounded and I hope that continues. I think people just like to hear uh, an authentic story and really get the authenticity around the characters. So that's definitely has to be a positive thing. I did just want to say this really because I expressed my personal concerns, but my experience has been nothing but wonderful because the great thing about the publishing industry, I think the challenge is it's a business. It's always going to be about business. But the wonderful thing is the people I have met are all book lovers. They love books. They love stories. They jump up and down when they like a story. So, you know, there is a lot of positive energy. And even though I do see the numbers and I think the publishing industry does need to keep opening itself up to a greater range of voices, more at the managerial level and the editorial level, I have encountered nothing but people who just love books and stories and really champion their writers. That's really encouraging that there are those champions there supporting good work, despite of who might be at the center of it, you know, really getting those stories out there that matter and that people can see themselves within. And even if they don't, they can still get some of those core values of, of love and respect and community and identity. So thank you. Part of this uh, podcast is also about food. Kamara and I love our food. So we're going to shift a little bit and still talking about the book, you know, the black cake, it's the title, but it also has a great significance in the book. So we know that inspired you. Can you tell us what special memory you have connected personally to Caribbean rum cake? Well, you mentioned Heather, that my mother made a legendary black cake. And so I would say those are my first memories, remembering her, you know, pulling out her big jar of fruits that had been soaking in rum and port mm. and making her rum puddings, which is what she called them. She called them rum pudding or plum pudding, this black cake and the long process. And, you know, she'd steam them in the oven with water and some people bake, other people steam. And she would then send these in tins when I was no longer living in New York and you know, I'd have, you know, roommates who to this day, to this day are saying, you know, rum pudding, are you making your mom's rum pudding? Because the food, it was just such a wonderful flavor and took such care. And she did really make a very popular cake. Other people in the family said the same thing. So for me, it's a combination of watching her, having fun, enjoying the food, and also nostalgia. You know, that was my mom. 
And the whole story about this other younger family member who wrote to me about my mother's rum pudding, one, I was surprised that he would care. But then I thought, it's not just about the recipe, is it? It is also about the nostalgia for the person, because had she been around, she would have been making that cake. Had she been around, she would have been sharing that recipe. So we cannot really separate our love of certain recipes from our love or memories of the person. And it's the smell of it. It just puts you back into that kitchen. It puts you back around that table. It gets you in the spirit. It makes all of those elements of what you experience at home or with your family. It brings all that back to life every time you smell it or taste it or see it. So for our listeners, those who don't know, can you share the cultural importance of Black cake in general for the Caribbean culture? Well, first, a bit more about the ingredients. So rum cake is essentially an evolved a different version of the English plum pudding. So it's made with dried fruits that are soaked in rum and port. You know, there will be variations depending on your recipe. But the fascinating thing is when you look at the history, when you look at the present of black cake, you see a cake that is just a joy to eat. It represents togetherness. It's served mostly at Christmas time. It's served at weddings and it's all positive. When you look at the history of the food, you see what is true of a number of different recipes. In the Caribbean, people see it as the quintessential holiday and celebration cake. They see it as a traditional Caribbean recipe, but it is inextricably linked to a recipe from another area of the world. And how did that recipe reach the Caribbean and evolve? It evolved because of colonialism. It evolved because of the sugar and rum economies, which were fueled by forced labor. We can say slavery, but we could also be talking about indentured servitude. And so when you look at the history of the recipe, you see a whole world of change and you see politics and economics and social situations. And in a way, they are two parallel stories. It doesn't change the fact that when I have rum pudding now, it's a beautiful experience. But there's the story that isn't always told, right? And so that cake in the novel Black Cake becomes a symbol not only of family togetherness and memory and cultural identity, but also the understanding that if we claim something as a tradition, we need to kind of look at where that tradition really came from. And maybe we need to acknowledge the whole story. And I, I think that sort of ties into what a lot of writers and a lot of people are doing now. They're saying, let's take another look at the stories we've been told about who we are, where we come from, how we've lived. Let us dare to take another look. Yeah, and see what we haven't been told <laughs> and how that might shift the way we view ourselves and our position towards maybe even the things that we do as tradition. Yeah. Are they really ours in power or are they ours in, you know, colonialism or, you know, oppression? So yeah, definitely. So do you have any other experience or special memories with foods from your varying cultures that make up your identity? 
Well, you know, I enjoy baking and I, I do have strong memories of baking, not only mom cake, but baking cookies and cakes with my sister and my mother. So that's a special thing. But, you know, I did live in Jamaica for a number of years as a child. And to this day, I yearn for some of the foods that are linked very directly to the earth and to the land there. So I'm not going to find them in Italy necessarily, or mm -hmm. depending on where you live in the United States. So a lot of things like the ackee, which is something that mostly only Jamaicans eat, even though it grows in a number of places, and rice and peas cooked with garlic and pepper and coconut milk. And I remember going back to the island and my childhood friend drove across the island to meet me and she held up this whole bunch of fruit and said, look, star apple, you know, things that as we grow up and move away, we don't see anymore. And the memories are all about, you know, being kids and eating this stuff and, you know, just being dirty and sticky and, and loving fruit, you know, so, so there are a lot of happy memories with foods to which I don't have access anymore. But, you know, ultimately, if you sit down for a meal and you're cooking together, it's a beautiful thing. Mm, yeah, it's so interesting, the memories of food. And you mentioned um, the Aki's because I know myself growing up in Australia and my family heritage is Jamaican as well. And my mum would always ask people when they were coming over from England or wherever and they asked, she asked what they would should bring. She would just say, just bring a can of Aki's and that's it. <laughs> Don't bring wine or chocolates or whatever else it is you want to bring as gifts. The gift that means something to me is a can of Aki's. So we would yeah. have these cans of Aki's in the cupboard that she would just treasure, stare at, not cook, but just, <laughs> just, just keep there. So I can totally identify with that. So did you never eat it? Did you never have ackee and salt fish? Oh, no, we did. We did. But she would just, I think just, she would just treasure them in the cupboard for a little while just to hold on, like you said, the memories that they have and, and what it symbolizes before cooking it. But no, no, she definitely cooked it. And we, we got to enjoy that. Another thing I love because I do identify as a New Yorker and someone from New England as well is, is something that's considered to be very American, but it's definitely Australian and you find it in the Caribbean too, is the good old fashioned barbecue. Mm. So things like taking corn on the cob and putting it right on the open fire. It doesn't have to be about the meats one cooks, but also the vegetables, just that barbecue and hanging out in the backyard and playing goofy lawn games. And again, it's just the being together. And those are the things that I do associate with my parents who are no longer around, mm -hmm. which sure, you miss people that you love who are no longer around, but they also bring a smile to my face. Mm, that's the power, as Heather said, the power of food brings back those memories. So we do love speaking about food and we know that food is the center of the story but also within the story there's family dynamics generational secrets and interactions across cultures you already said that it wasn't autobiographical but did you draw on your any of your own experiences to create these elements in the book while I didn't draw specifically on certain experiences certainly the idea of not knowing the whole story is something that has helped to feed my fascination also with identity and intergenerational communication because I come from a family where again very few people have had quite the same upbringing and my parents both lost their parents at early ages so there were a lot of stories that I 
did not know or just heard half stories, what I call half truths. And when I was a child, I thought, oh, my parents don't know anything because, well, they didn't know their own grandparents, blah, blah, blah. Then as I grew older, you know, you get to a certain age and your parents forget and they say something and then you realize, aha, they didn't tell me that, you know. So um, you begin to realize that in any case, people do conceal some of what they know. Sometimes it's a sad story, you know. Sometimes it's just something that felt very private, but as your children grow a little older, you feel more comfortable communicating. So in that respect, the idea of stories that uh, people don't share because maybe they feel the others are not prepared to hear them, even though maybe it would make no real concrete difference, that is something that fascinates me and that stays with me and probably fed into these characters. Mm, yeah, that is really interesting, that concept of things that people don't say, but as you get older, it's like people sometimes feel more comfortable to share things with you. I won't tell you any of the details, but I remember a funny episode, and I mean, it is funny, you have to laugh, in which, uh, you know, sadly, my mother passed away, and our stepfather was still with us, and I'd known that man all my life, practically, so we were very close, and I remember that as soon as my mother died, all of a sudden all of these stories came out and he'd say oh well you know your mother didn't want it you didn't want me to tell you that she wouldn't have liked me telling you this and blah 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 and it was fascinating you know just personal things that are of no interest or importance to anyone else except that for me at least I'm speaking only for myself and not for my siblings it gave me some perspective mm-hmm on some of the challenges that my parents may have faced as younger people, you know, difficulties that you don't know what people are going through. And you don't know why they don't always share things. And sometimes when they don't share, they also suffer consequences because people don't understand. They don't understand what's going on. And so that's a little detail. If you think, for example, without giving you any spoilers, if you think, for example, of the character Benny in Black Cake, there's a brother and a sister, Byron and Benny, and how there was a lot of misunderstanding around Benny, in part because she chose specifically to not share some of her difficulties with her family. In not sharing, and then also being very prideful, she did add to some of the misunderstanding. She didn't cause it on her own, but she did add to the misunderstanding between generations. Mm. Yeah, it is interesting learning more about people and just contemplating why they might have made the choices that they did to share or not share. Yeah, so that's always interesting. And I guess in those times, you can only just contemplate and reflect, really, to consider what their, what their thoughts might have been at the time. We know about Black Cake, but where do you normally draw inspiration for your work? I'm very influenced by an idea and by sensory details. So I do tend to start small and then it becomes a story. So I mentioned the scene that takes place in the past, the timeline that deals with the 1960s in Black Cake of just these girls swimming, swimming, swimming. So sometimes it just comes to me that way. And I allow it to do that and just write because the mind is complex. It's interesting. 
all you need is a color, a thought, a smell, and your imagination goes. So when you talk about inspiration, without a doubt, I tend to be, sometimes I'm out walking and that's where I get the writing. I remember being, this is for a project I'm working on now. I remember being at the Tate uh, Modern Museum in London and I was just thinking, oh, I should be writing, I should be writing, I should be writing, but let me go, I'm here, I'll go to the museum. And all of a sudden in the midst of an exhibit, I have to stop, pull out my notepad and start writing. And, and that's how the mind works. You know, we do have to live. We should just try to listen and look and, and read and write because, you know, I shouldn't speak for other writers. Everyone has a different method, but what I will say is the ideas come, you write, and then you think about it later and try to make some sense of what you've been writing. Uh, writing is a lot of revision. It's a lot of looking back. It's a lot of saying, hmm, I don't know, is this correct what I wrote? Let me go do some research now and see what's going on. You know, when I say see what's going on, what's really going on? I wrote this, does the research sort of back up my perception of what is going on or what may have happened in a certain period? Mm, that's wonderful. So you never know, you never know where inspiration may strike. So have the notepad always ready. <laughs> Exactly. And I love those moments of inspiration. I like what you said there, live, listen, and look. And that's definitely where you'll find it, all of that inspiration. So there's already a lot of buzz around Black Cake, and we're excited for you, even before it's public release, and it will soon be adapted to screen. So what was your first reaction to hearing that it will be streamed on, are we allowed to say? Well, yes, it has been announced that Hulu, the streaming service, has ordered an eight-part series based on Black Cake, the novel. And yes, it has been announced that the producers, meaning there's kind of a team, a sort of a tripartite team, including Oprah Winfrey's Harper Productions, Marissa Jo Serrar, who was an award-winning screenwriter from The Handmaid's Tale, who's doing The Women of the Movement, oh, sorry, Women of the Movement is the correct title, and uh, Aaron Kaplan of Capital Entertainment. It's, it has been announced, but it's early. So everyone's just sort of doing their writing and thinking and planning. And I'll leave the rest to others to say, but it was wonderful. It was like a dream come true, but I didn't know I had dreamed it. You know, I wrote my book. I'm happy to have it published. I'm happy if anyone's interested. And, and that's the way I'm thinking. And along comes this interest from these various people. And it's really exciting to think that they read, because of course they read an early version of the book and found it interesting because the two women I mentioned in particular, Oprah Winfrey and Marissa Jo Serrar are also people I really admire. They are women, they are women of color. And I hate to be a little chauvinistic in that respect, but it really is, you know, it, it really does mean a lot to me that two prominent and extremely talented women of color are leading this project and found something in Black Cake, the novel, that was interesting to them. Excellent. And will you be part of that um, writing adaptation process or is it left to their team? Well, it, it's going to be a team effort that mm -hmm. in some way would include me, but there is a screenwriting team. Mm -hmm. And and that's fine with me. I, I think I'm very excited to see uh, how they will interpret 
the story because I'm one of those people who I love film and I do not expect film to be to follow a book to the letter necessarily, mm-hmm. especially if it's a series. So I'm excited about the idea and seeing how they will move forward from the book. Why? Because I think that when I write a book, I've done that writing and I think of it as the beginning of a conversation with other people who read the book. Where does that conversation go? And film is one of the places where that conversation can go. And speaking of which, what do you hope the readers take away from it? You know, before they even get to see the adaptation, what do you want them to see? Well, first, obviously, I hope people enjoy the book, but you know, each reader is different. And so it's up to the reader to decide how they feel when they read Black Cake, the novel. One thing that I do hope they will notice is the fact that, again, you have a number of different people in this story, um, many of whom are people of color, but not all. And one thing they have in common, most of them have in common, is the fact that they run up against the expectations and stereotypes of other people based on the way they look or their family background or their love life or their profession. And in fact, this really influences their identity to some extent. And I find that's that interesting conversation that takes us back to the beginning of this talk. You know, how do you identify? How do other people see you? And what comes out in the wash? Whether or not we like it, what goes on around us also influences our sense of identity but it can also create conflict as it does in the novel Black Cake. So I I hope they find that interesting and and that maybe it'll start a conversation or two. That's all I expect because I, I love books. I'm a book lover and I think people should be able to feel the way they do when they read a book and I have nothing more to say to them. Mm, Well, I definitely found the book interesting, so I'm sure our listeners and fellow readers will find it just as interesting as well. And you've already shared a lot of your process and a lot of gems about writing, but do you have any other advice that you would give to anyone wanting to pursue an international writing career? Well, certainly as someone who lived in a country where Uh, my native language was not the main language and where I didn't really know a lot of other writers, people writing stories in English, I would say that we are living in a golden era in terms of the kind of community you can find online. Don't spend all your time on social media, that's my first bit of advice, but do use the online tools and social media to meet other writers who write what you do, to read their advice, to enter competitions, to read up on agents or publishers if you're interested, if you're at that point where you want to publish. But when it comes down to just the the writing, international or not, you know, don't lose yourself. Sit down in the morning or walk or stand and allow your mind to do its work. You know, don't sit around waiting for inspiration, Just, just write. There will be time to reread. There will be time to to decide where you're going and time to do the work of being in contact with other people. And more than anything, you know, read, because I think a lot of us write because we love stories. And sometimes maybe we forget that. Sometimes we forget that and we think, right, right, right. Well, you know, 
I'm just a little girl who loves stories and I love books. And so I'm just honored that I get to share a story with other people who love books. Yeah, that's really powerful. That actually just reminded me when I have those moments where I can't really come up with choreography, I forget that I'm not only a teacher and a choreographer, I'm also a dancer. So I need to go dance <laughs> in order to be inspired to create more. And it seems so simple, you know. Yeah, that must be wonderful. You're thinking, yeah, why am I here? Why am I even trying to share dance with other people? Yeah. And so you have to go back to your, your center. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Just go with it and do what comes naturally to you. It's great advice. So can you please tell us when and where listeners can buy the book and when should we expect to see Black Cake on screen? Well, uh, when we can see Black Cake on the screen, I think it's a little early to say it's mm -hmm. going to take a while. The book itself will be released generally in English on February 1st in the United States and related territories. And it will be released on February 3rd in the UK and Commonwealth territories. So for example, for your interest, Kamara, uh, we're talking about Australia on February 3rd, but it's all the same week. And it's going to be released in print, in audiobook form, and also through digital readers. I have to say that the book, the final copy of the book has already reached a number of readers through something called the Book of the Month Club. They included Black Cake as a January pick mm. so that subscribers were able to get early copies. And um, it was really exciting. It's been really great to hear from some readers, uh, hear their impressions. And I'm excited to be able to share the book with more people through booksellers and libraries. Mm, that's so exciting and I'm sure the feedback is really positive because like you said no spoilers but yeah I read it in a few days I finished it it's it great it's fantastic really really thank good thank you thank you yes get out there to the bookstores get on your e-readers whatever you use get on your audiobook listeners profiles and platforms and get the book you won't be disappointed so how can listeners connect with you and learn more about you well I'm on Twitter and Instagram and I've already heard from a lot of people through Instagram about the book which is nice and I also have a website but you know just get on a little bit of social media and connect and let me know what you're thinking and how you're liking the book. Yes. And we will um, include all of her handles in the description. So you guys will be able to connect really easily and please share your thoughts on black cake, share your stories, your personal memories um, with food and stories within your families. That would be great to add to the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yes. We always love to hear about those things and experiences. So that's almost it for our conversation with you today, Charmaine. But before we leave, we have to ask you our surprise question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, or it's not really a surprise if you, if, for our listeners who listen to our podcast, but you know, we will still say it's a surprise anyway. But which do you prefer, yams or yuca? And how do you like them cooked? Uh, I like yellow yam and just plain old boiled mm -hmm. nice and what's the perfect meal to have with those oh if I have that then you know you want something a little salty mm -hmm. so you know anything that's salty I'm not a big meat eater so you can even have them with an ackee and salt fish but I think people who like meats you want a salty dish 
And then I love sweet and salt. So I love things like rice dishes mm -hmm. with a sweet flavor and then the yam. Nice. They're also great in soup. Yes, we'll have to add that to some of our recipes that we've heard thus far. So thank you so much, Charmaine. That is all we have for today. We appreciate you sharing your process, a bit, a bit about your background and your upbringing, your memories with Black Cake. We love the book and thank you for sharing a copy with us. And we're excited for our listeners to hear more about you, but also to really dive into the book and get to enjoy those stories there. So we're going to take a little break and we're going to indulge everything that Charmaine shared with us. And when we come back, we'll have a little bit of dessert. We'll be right back. We are back and it's time for our sweet and savory desserts. We're going to recap those moments in the conversation that give us a sweet sugar rush or the others that are rich stick to the stomach and a bit more fulfilling. So for me, my sweet moment actually comes with a little takeaway quote. Uh, live, listen, look. When she was talking about how she was meant to be writing, but decided you know, she didn't have any inspiration, but decided to go have a visit and see an exhibition at the Tate Modern. And she was, you know, walking around and right in the middle of it, she just had to pull out her notebook and just start writing right then and there, you know, while she was taking in someone else's work. And it's a simple, sweet little moment because that has happened to me often where, you know, you get a bit of a block, a creative block. And you just kind of have to take your mind out of like focusing so hard on producing something and kind of just do something else, you know, not related and get that unexpected spark in the middle of what you're doing to just create. Yeah. So that was my sweet moment. I'm going to live, listen and look for those things. What about you? Mm, nice. Yeah, that was a good takeaway for sure. My sweet moment was the fact that she said she has been fortunate to not have encountered any challenges or many challenges creating her debut novel, which is, you know, so uh, wonderful to hear because we know how challenging it can be in the creative industry. So I think that was quite um, a sweet moment because she's been able to enjoy this moment and her debut no novel and just get the feedback and all the excitement that her readers are sharing with her. So I think that was a sweet moment for me because it's so joyful, really. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, and very fortunate that she can like live in that joy right away, you know, mm -hmm. putting herself out there because it is a task. Like you just, you never know how people are going to receive you in it. And what a nice feeling to just get that you know, that affirmation and that support and celebration right away in your work. Great. So what about your savory moment? Well, my savory moment actually is similar to your sweet moment, mm. but I took it as a more deeper, reflective mm, way of okay. looking at it. Go for and it. What I wrote down is that Charmaine said, don't sit around waiting for inspiration, which I think is you know, really similar to what you said for your sweet moment. But for me, I, I took that as more something to reflect on because, yeah, like you said, sometimes we sit and we're just waiting 
waiting for something to happen, waiting for creativity to strike or something like that. And, you know, if you just let it go or just go for a walk or listen to music or do something else, that creativity or inspiration can come to you. Mm, Nice. Nice. I like that. So almost like a a chicken and waffles kind of dessert. A little bit of savory, a little bit of sweet. (laughs) I got the sweet side. You got the savory side. (laughs) That's right. We both interpreted it in different ways. So that was my savory moment. And what was yours? My favorite moment was when she was talking about when there are half-truths that your parents tell you when you're younger. And Mm -hmm. then as they start to forget, you know, things, what they they forget what they meant to not, you know, what they weren't supposed to tell you. And you start to get more and more of the truth or broader perspective of what actually happened in their lives and and their perspectives. Mm -hmm. You know, she just started to see her parents and her elders in a different light. And that just made me think of just the relationship between my mom and myself and Avery and like how my mom tells Avery stories. And I'm like, that didn't happen like that. You know, and I'm like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> that wasn't, <laughs> that's not what I remember. And then of course, prob- you know, everyone, again, there's multiple sides to a story. It's like you experiencing it from your perspective and then your parents or, or someone else experience it from theirs. Mm-hmm. You know, it just made me think you just really don't know what position your parents are in when they have to make certain decisions mm-hmm. about their lives or your life and vice versa. You know, me being now being a parent, I'm mindful of the half truths that I tell my child and I try not to actually, you know, I'll tell her as truthfully about something that she can understand. And if there's mm-hmm. something that I feel like she can't understand, I will tell her that I'm like, there's, you know, there's parts of it you don't understand, but this is what is happening. You know, and yeah, that was my savory moment. Nice. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote that down somewhere as well. But yeah, I think, I guess we just have to have that compassion for people, especially our parents. Mm. Everybody made choices and there's not many people who just made the choices on a whim. Right. So yeah, I guess just trusting that they made the choices that was best yeah that was best for them at the time they did the best that they could with the information that they had exactly well on that note that's how we'll wrap things up thank you everyone for listening and please let us know your sweet and savory moments using the hashtag yams and yuka that's right don't forget to tag us at yams and yuka on twitter and at yams and yuka podcast on instagram and facebook or if you're feeling up to it, you can email us at yamsandyukapodcast at gmail.com because we really don't get any emails. I think we've said this a few times now, but I'm going to say it again in case you weren't aware. But do email us. We love an email. We so do. once again, the email is yamsandyukapodcast at gmail.com. Yes, you want to hear your thoughts on today's conversation, maybe conversations from previous episodes. So let's keep the discussion going. Share your stories as well so you can add them to the Yams and Yuka Tapestry. And we will chat with you guys next time. Bye.